how does this text, right? How does this list, and we've looked at, at several lists in Scripture throughout the summer, and this is, by the way, the last one we're, we're looking at this summer. How does this fit into your understanding of who God is? What your life should be like? What our church should be like? How are we to live? Because if all Scripture is relevant to us and inspired and meant by God to influence us, we have to deal with passages like this one. And it's good to read it out loud, and it's good to read it in your own private devotions, because this is what God says, and it's important. So we're going to try to do our best to try to see what this passage can teach us about us and our church this morning. So I'd like us to consider it under three headings, like you need another list to remember. Uh, But here's the outline. We have three headings. First, let's look at the city without walls. The city without walls. Secondly, let's look at the city at work. And thirdly, the city waiting for her Savior. The city without walls, the city at work, and the city waiting for her Savior. Okay, let me ask an obvious question, okay? What are walls for? Why do cities need walls? Why is Nehemiah, in a very comfortable setting in Persia, in the royal palace, great job, a lot of influence, why is he so distressed to receive the report that Jerusalem's walls are, are, are lying in ruins? Why is it that it, it, it moves him to action? He, he gets this, this directive from the king, uh, gathers all the resources, and actually moves to Jerusalem to rebuild it. What are the walls for? Well, number one, walls and gates are there to protect the people. People who live in the city... And even those in the surrounding areas who would take refuge in the city in the case of war are protected by the walls and gates of the city. Now, there's great local opposition to the return of the exiles. We heard there's three names mentioned, three local tribes, almost like little kingdoms, little provinces that are actively opposing the Jews' return to Jerusalem, rebuilding of the temple, rebuilding of the city, restoration of the Jewish culture. So this is not a hypothetical question. If you have no walls in the city, anybody can just walk in and take over. A city without walls is easy, easy to conquer and is easy to keep in check. And while there were no walls, it was sort of okay for everybody to tolerate the Jews returning. So that's number one, to protect the people. But number two, walls and gates are there to preserve what's inside the city. Now, in ancient times, actually like in modern times, cities were centers of worship or centers of culture or centers of education, centers of commerce and and law and, and government. In Israel, people would travel to Jerusalem to worship in the temple. Uh, to appeal to the king for justice, to help resolve a court case, uh, to trade, to learn. There's lots of reasons that Jerusalem uh, occupied this central position in the Jewish life and culture. Now, Jerusalem without walls cannot secure any of those things. And most of all, the temple. The temple is now, currently, before Nehemiah starts building, is exposed. It's functioning. There are sacrifices that are being brought. The priests are there. The Levites are there. But it's exposed to any attack. When Nebuchadnezzar defeated the Jewish kingdom, 
he not only destroyed the royal palace, which made sense, and the temple, which also made sense, but also the walls of the city. Now, the idea was to destroy the whole Jewish society and culture. The whole identity of God's people was to be destroyed, and the remaining people of influence were taken into exile, so they would assimilate in Babylon. So they would lose their identity there. So you either lost it in Judea and Jerusalem when the city was destroyed, or you lost it in Babylon when you were supposed to be assimilating to that culture. Now, in God's providence, God kept His people distinct, and they never really truly assimilated. And when they returned, they were able to rebuild that identity back in their home city in Jerusalem. But the fate of the newly repopulated Jerusalem was far from certain before the walls were built again. So Nehemiah's project of rebuilding the walls is critical not only for the survival of the people who are actually in that city in Jerusalem, but for the preservation of the identity of God's covenant people. What good is a rebuilt temple if at any moment an enemy can come and destroy it? How can a city prosper if it cannot be defended? Now, this is the situation we find uh, that we find Nehemiah in. But I see plenty of parallels with the state of the church today. So please indulge me in some hopefully prophetic commentary on our movement. I'm going to talk broadly about the evangelical church, and we are part of that movement. We are an evangelical church. There's lots of other different kinds of churches, but we're all part of the larger evangelical movement, and I think there are some troubling things that need to be pointed out about us that may not be true about our church specifically. Not everything I'm going to say is going to be true about every person in the evangelical church, every congregation. But I think broadly, these are some things we need to deal with. I believe that we have been so worried about the empire that we have neglected the holy city. We have been so concerned about the world that we have neglected the church. The walls and gates of the evangelical church are in disrepair. We are in a season that some have dubbed the great de-churching, meaning that people are actively leaving the evangelical church, stating their reasons, disengaging, and actually leaving the faith altogether. We don't see as much movement between churches as often happens. It's mostly people leaving the church altogether. It is significant. The numbers are significant. It is easy for people to leave a city that has no walls. The evangelical movement, I think, is losing its, its proper definition. Whether because of fear or arrogance, we have neglected building up the church. Where is the buttress of the truth? Why is sound doctrine not common in our churches. It's there. Many congregations hold to the truth, but it is not common to hear a soundly doctrinal sermon. Are we using the mortar of love? 
Is it actually what keeps us together? Is it actually what keeps congregations together? That we love each other? Enough that we can overcome our differences and our preferences? Enough that we can set some things aside and say, I will love you even though? And I will stay with you in the same congregation even though we disagree on certain things? Are the gates of grace open? Or are they half open only to certain people? How tall is our, is our steeple of hope? When did it happen that Christians have stopped being people of hope? And we've, we've become people of fear. What about the wall of justice? Does it have all the bricks or just some of our favorite bricks? Is our justice selective? Is the wall of character stable? Have we invested enough in the moral formation of our people so that when a crisis comes, we actually respond instinctively in a Christ-like manner? What about integrity? Why is it the reputation of the evangelical church no longer contains integrity? Are the towers of gospel preeminence in good repair? Do we actually place the gospel above everything else and orient ourselves toward it and build everything around it? Does the bulwark of God's sovereignty alleviate our fears? Are we the kind of people that can, can go through a crisis, whether it's in the culture or personally or in a particular congregation, and say, yes, it is a crisis, but God is still on the throne, and I will not overreact. I will not be too happy about a victory, nor will I be too sad about a defeat, because God is sovereign. There's stability in my life because He holds it together. Not me, but He holds it together. The church is a walled city. Without walls, the population of a city is just a crowd. It's just a gathering. With walls, it's a community. I'm afraid that many of our evangelical congregations are simply crowds, are simply gatherings attracted by something. But they're not families. They're not communities because they lack definition. They lack boundaries. They lack commitments. Now, I'm speaking very broadly, partly because I want you to, to be thinking about it. I, I don't necessarily want to give you all the answers because simply I, I don't have them. But I want to ask the right questions so we all individually and collectively as a congregation can go to Scripture, can go and ask the Holy Spirit to help us process what is happening in the wider church and what our role may be in correcting it. Now I'm going to give you a quote. And I want you just to, to remember and to think about it, because it made me think. For several weeks, I'm, I'm, I'm mulling it over. I'm thinking, is he right? To what degree is he right? This comes from Russell Moore in his recent book, Losing Our Religion, An Altar Call for Evangelical America. He says, and I wonder if you would agree with him. With him. He says, we see now... Young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe what the church teaches, 
but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. Now, let, me, let me say this again, okay? We see now young evangelicals walking away from evangelicalism not because they do not believe that what the church teaches, but because they believe the church itself does not believe what the church teaches. In other words, they, they may see an inconsistency in us. They may see a city without walls with an unprotected, left-to-attack temple. And when they see that and they say, if the church is not acting consistently with what the church says the church believes, something is wrong here and I don't want to be a part of it. Now, I, th this, is a, this is a challenge. This is for you to start thinking about it. Is he right? To what degree is he right? Are there other reasons why people are leaving the church? What do we do as a congregation with something like this? How about our walls? How about our gates? How strong are we? Are we protecting the right things? Are we building up the right things? Can we say that though we are concerned with what is happening in the world, we are not distracted from the work that the Lord gave us in the church? And so we can react to things, and we must react to things that we see happening around us. But are we reacting in the right way, from the right place, guided by the right principles? We cannot, I've, I've said it many times, we cannot give the world what we ourselves do not have. And so if we keep doing it, we keep, keep criticizing the world, but we keep criticizing the world from the place of our own unhealthiness. It's just words. We have very little to offer. But if we speak from a place of vibrant spiritual life, true worship, sound doctrine, character and integrity, if we speak from that, we have something to say and we have something to give. And we open the gates and we say, we know what it's like in the world, but come into the church you can see what the church is like. Think about it. I'm hoping for many more conversations as we have been having about all these, these things, but I think this is an important parallel to make with Nehemiah's time. Are we a city without walls? Now, the people respond to Nehemiah's challenge. It challenges them to rebuild the city. They respond with resolve and enthusiasm, much like the ministry fair this morning. A lot of excitement. People want to be involved. People want to do stuff and tell others about the stuff they're doing. And so Nehemiah 2.18, the people respond. They say, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. That's the reaction that's needed. Let us rise up and actually get to work. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. They see it as a good work. They see it as a worthy pursuit, and they're saying, we will put our effort, we will put our time, our energy, our skills to it, and we will rebuild the walls. Now, it can be discouraging to see the church struggling, but there should be great optimism about what God can do. With Nehemiah, we should say, just like Nehemiah said, with confidence, the God of heaven will make us prosper and then get to work together. The God of heaven is on our side. 
Yes, there's a lot of terrible things in the world. There's a lot of problems and sickness in the evangelical church. But the God of heaven is on our side. The God of heaven will make us prosper. And so let him strengthen our hands for the good work and let us rise up and build. I'd like to share several observations about the nature of the work that we're all engaged in when we build up the church. Let's see what we can glean from this list of names and places. Number one, our work is a holy work. It is a holy work. Nehemiah 3 verse 1 says, Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. Now the priests, though they're building, they're using rocks and, and putting things together, and, you know, fitting things and building the gate. They're doing that and they're seeing that as holy work. They're treating this construction project as dedicated to the Lord. They're doing it for God and with God. And so we should do our work just like that. It is, it's a holy thing. God is in our midst. The God of heaven will make us prosper. The advance of the church of Christ is not a political, social, or marketing project. We may be involved in politics. We may do some marketing. We may support certain social causes. But the project itself, the church itself, is not any one of those things. It is a holy project. It's holy work. And if we treat it as any of those things primarily, as a political thing, as a social thing, as a commercial thing, if we take any of those things and make that our identity, we will inevitably fail. Now, Nehemiah is a civil servant who comes to Jerusalem with the full support of his king. Now, he's got, he's got a lot of power. I mean, this is not somebody that just comes from somewhere and says, I'm just going to help build this city. No, no, no. He comes with the, not just the permission of the king, but the commission of the king with people and money and influence and authority to rebuild this city. But look at how he himself introduces himself and presents himself to the people in verse 18 of chapter 2. He says, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. He's saying, I am here because God's hand has been upon me. I am here commissioned by God. And also, right, in addition to that, the king pronounced certain things and I have his authority too. But what's the primary here? The God of heaven sent him. And if you read, and if you read the book of Nehemiah, you will see that again and again, when Nehemiah when he encounters opposition, when, when he describes his project, he talks about it primarily as a God thing, as something that God wants him to do, and not just a political pursuit, not just a construction project for the strength of the city. It's something that God is doing. His authority is first from God and second from the king. So he uses his political power, but he considers his work ultimately ordered and empowered by God himself. Now, the church is not apolitical, as in we don't care about politics. And the church is not anti-political, as in we think politics are bad. No, we're neither of those things. 
But we have a healthy suspicion towards politics. We have a biblical realism towards politics. We are involved in politics in as much as politics matter, which is quite a bit, but not as much as God, not as much as the church, not as much as the kingdom of heaven. Every Christian, by entering into this holy work, the work of the church, the work of the kingdom, is a priest under the new covenant. Now, we see priests and Levites here building the wall and consecrating it, and they're making it holy, and they're doing their things to point out to the rest of the people that this is something special. But now, because of Jesus, because of the new covenant, because of the gift of the Holy Spirit, every one of us is a priest. Every one of us has the ability to consecrate, to make certain things holy purely because I, as a person of God, redeemed by Christ's blood, am involved in it. Now, we can choose not to do that. We can choose to see it as all sorts of other things. But Scripture tells us that whatever you do, whatever you do, you do it for the glory of God. You do it as unto the Lord, because God is involved in everything, but especially in the work of His church. 1 Peter 2 says, As you come to Him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That's who you are. And so live like it. Do the holy work that God has given to you. Number two, it is local work. It is holy, but it's also local. I, I love, as much as it's hard to, for me to read this list to you out loud, and I stumble over many names, I love how specific this list is. Everyone has a section of the wall they're working on, and we are specifically told from here to here, right? Now, this is your part. You know, this is you're working here with your brothers, you're working here with your coworkers, you're working here with your kids. This is, this is your place. It's specifically designated. Everyone has a section they're working on, and some work right next to their house. They're just building the wall, and, and some houses are in the wall. So this is, this is very specific. People are working on specific things. We cannot care about the universal church unless we're involved in the local church. We can't care about the, the fate of the evangelical movement unless we're involved in an evangelical church and actually being part of it. My main response to the state of, of the evangelical church is to serve my congregation well. I think I can do the most good by loving you, by faithfully teaching the Word, by shepherding you, by developing the ministries of the church, by caring for our community, the people that God has placed around us, by supporting our missionaries. I think we will do more good if we act locally. And you see that happening in our text. Now, the local is not only determined by which part of the wall the person took ownership of, but also who, were, who they were working next to. Again, I, I love the, how specific it is. This guy is working next to this guy. And after that guy, there's that guy. There are names and they're in order. Like we know who worked with whom. Now, have you noticed the repetition of the phrases next to him or after them? 
Again and again, we are told that there's cooperation. Because, of course, you can do great on your section of the wall, but if the guy next to you isn't doing their work, right, the wall is not finished. The wall doesn't serve its purpose. There's togetherness, but there's also interconnectedness. It, it's, a, it's a community project. Everybody's working together. Everybody's working side by side, and every part of the wall is covered. I mean, this, this, this is our ministry fair this morning, isn't it? You, we literally had tables next to one another, right? And by the way, I didn't design it this way. This is not, I wasn't thinking, I'm going to preach on Nehemiah, so let's do the ministry fair. Let's place the tables. It's like a wall, you know. I didn't do that. But that is just the nature of church ministry. And by the way, none of those ministries are separate. They're not really independent, because every ministry is connected to some other ministry, and the success of that ministry depends on how well they work with other ministries. Mercy relies on men's ministries, by the way. Counseling helps mercy. Mercy may direct somebody to counseling. There's all these connections. And that's how it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be interconnected, because it is so local. There's proximity. There's, there's relationships involved here. Number three, it is communal work. It's holy, it's local, and it's communal. Everyone is included in this work. Everyone has a place. And it's interesting to see all the various people involved. Now, these are not all construction workers. I'm sure some had some experience in construction. Many seem to come from all kinds of other lines of work. Now, we have priests and Levites. You know, we pastors are not known, by the way, for our physical manual labor skills, right? Uh, unfortunately for our families. <laughs> but you have priests and Levites working, people from Jerusalem and people from other cities. People who don't live in Jerusalem, by the way, show up to build the wall. They're actually helping. Now, they're in Jericho and Mitzpah, but they come because Jerusalem is important, because this, that city needs walls. The temple needs to be protected. The seat of culture needs to be defended. You have uh, rulers and governors you have people of, of high influence and high status that are working seemingly alongside everybody else, right? There doesn't seem to be any distinctions. Then you have goldsmiths, perfumers, right? These are guilds. These are, these are artisans. There's, these are people who have their shops. They're probably more, they're wealthier than other people. And yet, they're, they're, they're putting work in. I'd love to see the section of the wall that the goldsmiths and the perfumers made, right? <laughs> It's got to be special. I mean, I, it's not like anything else. you got temple servants and merchants. I mean, these are just those who are listed. Everybody's working together. It's a community. And then, you know, this, this guy in verse 12, he brings his daughters, right? <laughs> he puts his daughters to work. Maybe a personal application for me in verse, <laughs> verse 12. But everybody seems to be pitching in because everybody has a place and a role in the church. Scripture is clear that the Holy Spirit gifts every believer. Every one of us has something to offer. And without you offering that gift, everybody else is missing something. We are lacking something. So everybody needs to find their place. Romans 12, the Apostle Paul tells us, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ." and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. 
let us use them. Let us rise up and build. Let us use our gifts. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If service, in our serving. The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. It's not the only list in the Bible that has to do with gifts because the Holy Spirit wants to use us use the gifts he gave us. Number four, it is humble work. It is humble work. Unity and interconnectedness are achieved through humility. Everyone had to work together without looking down on others. Now, I've already mentioned people of various levels of influence, reputation, education, wealth, are working side by side. Some did more work than others. We have, a, we have several passages that say, and those guys did another section. They took on another thing. Added to their section another section. Not everybody could do that, but some did. Without seemingly any strife, without seemingly any, any desire to get praise for that. Now, the only negative verse in chapter 3 is verse 5. And I think it's there as a warning for us. Because when you see this, this picture of happy God's people, happy to serve together, right? You need to remember, sin is still there. And not absolutely everybody is on board because it is never true, this side of glory. And so in verse 5 we read, And next to them the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Now some of your Bibles may say their supervisors or their lords. It is a plural word here. It could mean the Lord is our God very well. It's used that way in other passages of Scripture. It could also mean other people in authority, maybe somebody like Nehemiah, some outsider who came and now bossing everybody around, or a governor or a ruler or a priest. So there are people who, instead of humbly serving and finding their place, they would not stoop to serve others, and they're excluded from this work. Number five, it is work, this is the last one, it's work in the, in the face of opposition. It's work in the face of opposition. Chapter 2 ends with Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem's ridicule. They don't think they can do it. They're ridiculing them. Chapter 4, after they have seen the progress, begins with the enemies plotting together with anger against Nehemiah and the people of Jerusalem. Now, th this this is not, they're not just getting together and building with nobody around. There are tribes around that are actively trying to oppose the work. And so Nehemiah institutes this whole new strategy in chapter 4 and 5. We read about the sword and trowel kind of strategy, right? People are, are building the wall and at the same time holding a sword. People are accompanied so, so nobody's alone. So as there's always a watchman because they're afraid that at any moment they can get attacked. So they're working to this degree with this effectiveness in the face of opposition and people trying to stop the work. Now the church will always experience some degree of opposition, always. We work in enemy territory. That's the nature of the work of the church. And so we are always trying to shine light into the dark. And as Jesus told us, nobody wants their evil deeds to be exposed. There's a lot of people, and there's a lot of forces, both demonic and human, 
there's a lot of structures and organizations that don't want the church to succeed. And so we're always going to have some pushback. Now, it's interesting that there are always, there are always eras in church history when the church is surprised at opposition. And maybe we are in one today where somehow we are amazed that we don't have all the influence in the culture. Somehow we are amazed that we can pass all the laws we think we should pass. That's not amazing. That's not actually surprising at all in the history of the Christian church. That's normal. And this is minor compared to many other places and eras of history. We need to accept that whatever we do, if we do it right, we will actually encounter some degree of opposition. Doesn't mean we shouldn't use the opportunities and influence that we have. It doesn't even mean that we shouldn't see greater influence, but we should expect that there will be opposition. Paul uh, addresses the church in Philippi and he says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. That's what I'm talking about, the walls and gates of the city, the manner of life worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. And then he says, this is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Paul says, when you are working in unity side by side without fear and you're experiencing opposition and persecution, he says, this is proof. This is proof that you are saved, that God is using you, that this is real, that what you're doing is right. Opposition is not a sign that the church is in danger or in trouble. It affirms our salvation and our calling. Now, these are the traits of the kind of work we are called to be involved in from this text. It is holy work. It's, it's local. It's, it's communal. It, it, there's opposition. There's all these things. It's humble. We are supposed to do it. Now, the practice of it, right, is get involved in a ministry. That's the practice of it, right? I'm not, I'm not giving you those applications. Figure out where your gifts fit a point of need in the church in the community. Figure it out and use your gift. Rise up and build. And finally, the Jerusalem that Nehemiah helped rebuild was eventually destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. So the question is, was it worth it? Was his work worth it? Is our work today building up the church worth it? And the Bible says, yes, because in the gospel, we are given great hope for the future of God's people, for the future of the church. Now, Hebrews 11.10 tells us that Abraham was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Isn't that a good description of the Christian life? We're looking forward to, a, to the city that has foundations, that's real, that's permanent, that's, that's there, that's not going to be destroyed, whose designer and builder is God himself. God's own city is promised to us. Now, we may have many building projects today, 
But in every one of them, we are looking for God to reveal our permanent home, the city of His own design and construction. To the church wearied by opposition and persecution, God says in Hebrews 13, verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so we work, we build walls, and we repair gates. We wait for the city of God to be revealed, even as we work on our projects here. It's like we're training. See, what we're doing now, we, we will be doing in eternity. We're training for what is to come. In fact, it's the vision of that future city that God gives us that informs how we are to function in the church. We actually look into the future to see how that can inform us in the present. One of the great descriptions of the future city is found in Isaiah 60. It describes a city in which there is true security. What all of us are looking for, true security. No danger, no fear. It says that the gates are continuously open. But instead of the enemies coming in to plunder the city, which would happen if you just open the gates, right? We read that the nations bring their wealth into the city as a gift. So all these nations are bringing the best that they have, their greatest cultural achievements, and they bring it into this heavenly Jerusalem to share with everybody and to praise God through those offerings because there's true security. Nobody's scared in the city of the gates are open. It is a place of worship because the Lord is in her midst. The Lord, it says that the Lord will be our everlasting light and our glory in that city. It's a place of justice where evil has been punished and good rewarded. Culture will thrive in that city. It will be majestic and full of joy, Isaiah says. It will be a place of prosperity for the righteous. And Isaiah says even the least will be like a clan. And the smallest family, the smallest part of, part of the city will be like a great mighty nation. They will receive that kind of honor, that kind of recognition. That's our future. And then Isaiah 60 verse 18 says, Violence shall no more be heard in your land. Devastation or destruction within your borders. And listen to what he says. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. That's the city that's ours, that's promised to us, that informs what we do now and how we build our cities and our churches today. That's the city. The city that has salvation for its walls, praise for its gates. Now, who can build a city like that? Who can take salvation and make a wall? Who can take praise and make a gate? There is one greater than Nehemiah. You know, Nehemiah left the royal palace to come and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. But Jesus Christ left heaven, left the Trinitarian harmony and joy to come and renew the world. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king, but Jesus, who himself is king of kings and lord of lords, drank the cup of God's wrath to make us kings and queens to rule with him forever. This Jesus, the one that's greater than Nehemiah, wept over the city. I mean, you remember the, the moving descriptions in the gospel of Jesus weeping over the city. I think he's thinking about Nehemiah. 
I think he's thinking about the prior destruction of the city and the future destruction of the city. He's thinking about the building projects of God's people. And he's weeping, knowing that even that is not going to last, but a new city is coming. He entered that city on the donkey in, a, in great humility. But in the city, he was so despised that he had to be led outside its gates and put to death on a rocky hill outside the city, perhaps not far from the sheep gate through which animals were brought to the temple to be slaughtered. And so Jesus Christ, the one greater than Nehemiah, died for the city. And on the third day, he rose, having conquered all the enemies of God's people, greater than Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, its death, sin, the world, and the devil. And he promised to return and reveal to us this eternal city, the heavenly Jerusalem, of which Isaiah prophesied. And all those who belong to Jesus will be in the new city. Will you be there? Are you looking forward that city whose designer and builder is God himself, the city with foundations, the city with walls and gates, gates that are open wide for you to come in even now? Are you waiting for your Savior to come?